So I'm, I'm kind of lame. Honestly, I, uh, I pretty much forgot today was New Year's Day because uh, I was asleep by 10.30 last night. No, I am not 85. I'm 24 years old, and I just really like my sleep. Um, and honestly, it's probably better for all of your sake, because if I stayed up till midnight and then got up and tried to preach, this would have been nonsense. So hopefully the extra sleep will actually be helpful. Uh, but it is January 1st, and so I, I am curious. How many of you are, are New Year's resolution type people? How many of you have actually made a New Year's resolution going into 2023? Honestly, I, okay, so I'm the same. I am, I'm not a resolution guy. I never really have been. I don't have a good reason. I think I just honestly don't care enough to like put in the time to figure out what I want to do in any given year. Um, plus, as was just proven, didn't even really register that today was New Year's Day until people started wishing me Happy New Year's when they were walking in this morning. And evidently, a bunch of you are like me. It's just not really something that we do. Um, but my hope for today is that maybe not we're gonna, that we're going to leave here with, with New Year's resolutions. Um, in fact, I hope that, that what we're going to see today from God's Word will not be a resolution just for 2023, um, but a resolution for our lives. Um, as believers, as a church, the, the way that we um, are, the way that we interact with one another and interact with the world around us. And so to do that this morning, we're going to be in the book of Romans uh, chapter 11, the end of chapter 11 from verse 33 into chapter 12, verse 2. If you've got a Bible with you, it'd be good to turn there. We'll be um, digging into these few verses. So I'll just give you a little bit uh, of an opportunity to turn there to Romans 11 and just give you a little bit of context because that's going to be helpful with what we're doing this morning. So Romans 9 to 11, those three chapters, uh, are probably some of the most interpretively difficult passages in the Bible. Um, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the doctrine of election. He's dealing with God's right to have mercy on some and harden others. He's dealing with the relationship between Israel, God's people under the Old Covenant, and the church, God's people under the New Covenant. Um, and we also really see the Apostle Paul wrestling with the reality that many of his people have rejected their Messiah, that the ethnic Jews, the, the person who they waited for for so long, had come, and now Paul has seen that most of them are not interested in what he had brought. There's, there's a lot of big questions that come up throughout these chapters, none of which I have any time to, to deal with this morning. Um, but I like having conversations about theology. So if those three chapters are interesting to you and you want to talk about them, I would love to do that, just not in the next 40 minutes or so. Um, a little more background. The, the way that the Apostle Paul writes, he'll often kind of present us with information and then switch to talking about how that changes us. So you'll hear that talked about as him switching from the indicative, from telling readers what is true, uh, to the imperative, telling them how that has to change how they live. And so we're kind of right on that gap. Chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans are all theology. They're all teaching, and then chapters 12 to the end of the book are essentially, now what do we do? If everything that I have told you to this point is true, how does that change how we live? Um, he does that as well, if you want to see it in a bit of a smaller way. The book of Ephesians is divided that way. Chapters 1 through 3, bunch of teaching. Chapters 4 through 6, bunch of what do you do now, given that all this is true. So we're jumping in right as he wraps up 11 chapters of teaching with, essentially, a short doxology, a short moment of worship. So I'm going to read from Romans 11, verses 33 to 12, verse 2, where Paul writes, 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the first thing I want us to notice this morning um, is a little word that, that starts off verse 33. It's the word, oh, which, which is there in the English. It's also there in Greek. And really what this is telling us is that this is Paul breaking into worshipful exclamation. Like something is changing. Um, and he does this a lot. Paul will be writing, expounding some big truth. And then it's almost like he can't help himself. He just like bursts into worship. And that's what we're seeing here at the end of chapter 11. He, he's exalting God kind of looking back on what he has been, been working through in his writing, and he just breaks into worship over these truths. And this worship that we see here is really based on three things. Those three things are the depth of God's riches, the depth of God's wisdom, and the depth of God's knowledge. And I think if we take these in reverse order, we kind of understand how they work together, right? So, so the depth of God's knowledge. God knows everything past, present, future. He knows our thoughts. He knows our actions. He knows our intentions. He knows how big the universe is. He knows what every star looks like up close. He has total, complete, absolute knowledge. And then we see that Paul's worshiping him for the depth of his wisdom. So the relationship between wisdom and knowledge is that knowledge is knowing the facts and that wisdom is knowing what to do with those facts. How do I respond based on them? So not only does God know everything, he's also perfect in applying that knowledge. He has all the facts, and he always knows the best way to go about dealing with those facts. And then finally, the depth of God's riches. Right? So God has an infinite pool of resources to draw from to ensure that his wise plan is accomplished. So he knows everything, he knows the best way then of going about using his knowledge of everything. And because he owns everything, he does what he wants. <laughs> when God has a plan, it will be accomplished and it will be the most wise and perfect plan. And so, out of this infinite supply of wisdom and knowledge, God acts in a way that Paul calls unsearchable and inscrutable, which I had no idea what that word means. Um, which, ironically enough, I looked it up, and it means impossible to understand. So God's ways are unsearchable, and his, or his, um, his judgments are unsearchable, and his ways are impossible to understand. And there's a few things I find really interesting about this second sentence here in verse 33. So just as a reminder, this directly follows Paul grappling with the fact that his people, the Jews, who he loves, have largely rejected Jesus. And it also directly follows Paul's presentation of the reality that God has mercy on and hardens individuals based on his sovereign decree and not based on what people do. These are, these are weighty things 
They're, they're heavy things. They're difficult to understand. They're things we wish we could understand. And so as Paul is, is grappling with this, and it's very real for him, it's very emotional. We flip back just a few pages. Beginning of Romans chapter 9, listen to what he says. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is an emotionally charged issue for him. And yet, in the midst of the difficulty, he just trusts and acknowledges God's wisdom and knowledge. Which I find really challenging because what he's doing here, essentially, is saying, man, God's plan is emotionally hurting me. Like, seeing my people, the Jews, reject Christ, I don't like that. I don't like how that feels, but God is all-wise, and God is all-knowing. And it's okay that I don't understand his ways. Second thing that I think is really interesting about this sentence, the Bible is really, really clear that God has made himself known to us, especially in Christ, right? So, so we are given in the Bible, uh, a picture of a God who is knowable. He, he presents his character to us. He, he enters into relationship with human beings. He has shown us his attributes so that we can describe his character. He is a knowable God, but his ways and his judgments are not knowable or not understandable, at least not always. And honestly, I think that's a good thing, right? Because my wisdom is not infinite. Your wisdom is not infinite. Um, I'm always doing dumb things. I'm always finding ways to, to screw up my own life. That's what human beings are really, really good at, is messing things up. So if I found myself always agreeing with the way that things were going and always agreeing that, that God was doing the thing that made sense to me, that would kind of bring into question whether God is really God. Because if someone with, with infinite wisdom I found myself always in agreement with them, but then I saw how much my wisdom screwed my life up, would probably bear out that maybe his wisdom is not that perfect. And so really, the fact that we don't often understand what God is doing kind of is what makes him God. <laughs> it's what reminds us that we aren't that great, that we're not that smart, that God knows best. And the third thing I find really interesting here is that Paul, in the midst of the emotional difficulty, is worshiping God for this. He's worshiping because he can't understand. You, you might expect him to be lamenting. You know, he acknowledges God's wisdom and knowledge, and then, oh, I just, I just wish that I could understand your ways, God. It makes me sad that I can't, but that's not what he does. He breaks into worship, and in worship, he cries out, your ways are not understandable. And that's something worthy of worship in Paul's mind. And really, if you know some of Paul's other writings, it doesn't become too surprising that he would see it this way. Um, the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, listen to the way that he talks about the message of the gospel. He says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, listen to this, through the folly of what we preach, through the foolishness of the message that we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Right? I mean, if, if we're very honest, none of us could have come up with the plan of salvation. And from a human perspective, it makes no sense. It's not a wise plan that, that God would see his people in, in utter, open rebellion. The, these human beings who he made turning against him and he would put in motion a plan in which he would send his son to bear the weight of the sin of rebels, to, to absorb his wrath against sin on the cross. And then more than that, to, to say to these people, okay, you've done nothing. I mean, you've rebelled against me and that's it. But now just put your faith in this one who died for you. And not only will I forgive your sin, I will act as if all of his obedience belongs to you. Come on. That's really dumb. Like, like from a human perspective, right? I think it actually it gives a lot of evidence to maybe why the Bible wasn't just written by humans. Because anybody trying to start a world religion and saying to you, all the work is done. You're good. You're good. Put your faith in this guy. That's a really bad way to start a cult. Like if you just tell them they don't have to do anything else to earn salvation, it's a foolish message. But it's true because God's wisdom is so much greater than ours. So we too must learn to worship God for the fact that his ways are unfathomable to us. That, that we may never look and see and agree with everything he is doing, but it's, it's right and it's good. So then in building through this section, Paul quotes two passages from the Old Testament to kind of build on this. So the first one there, you'll see it in quotation marks in your Bible. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Um, and so essentially, he, he's just trying to support this idea that God has, has a depth of wisdom and knowledge, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Nobody has ever offered God a plan wiser than the one he was already planning, right? No one's ever presented God with information he didn't already know. No one can counsel him. No one can tell him what to do. He knows best. And he quotes from the book of Job. He quotes, who has given God a gift that he might be repaid? Rhetorical question, the answer being nobody. Nobody has done that because we can't give God anything because he owns everything. His riches are infinite. We, we can't add to him in any way. So really, I think the point is we, we can't give God anything. We can't give him ideas. We can't give him insights. We can't give him facts he doesn't know. We can't give him possessions because he is perfect in all of those things. And that's kind of where Paul is, is aiming in this moment of worship. And that's when he hits verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So from him, through him, and to him, by which he means all things are, are from God. God is the ultimate source of everything both in the sense that he created the entire universe out of nothing, 
but also from the fact that, that nothing comes to people apart from God's sovereign decree. He never loses control. He never slips up for a minute and things happen that he has to come in and fix. Everything is from God. Everything also is, is through him. He is the sustainer of the universe. The author of Hebrews will say that, that Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power, which means if ever for a moment Jesus decided to stop upholding the universe by the word of his power, it would cease to exist. Our, our very existence is maintained by our God actively in every single moment. And then finally, all things are to him. So he is the, the end or the goal of all of creation, of all of human history. His glory is the goal. All of it points back to God. And right, the, uh, the, the big point, from him, through him, and to him are what? All things, all of it. Truths like this would lead the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper to write, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. All things are from, through, and to him. As I was thinking about this this week, I was really challenged with the question of, of do I live like this is true? Right? Do we live like everything that we have, both good and bad, which I'll get to in a minute, is from, through, and to our God? What about our time? Do we live like each moment we are given is a gift from God, sustained by God, meant to be used for the sake of God, for his glory? Do we live like our finances, whether we're rich or poor, are from God intentionally? He, he could make money appear in your bank account. He could do that. He chooses not to for a reason. All, all of our financial situations are from God, sustained by God, and to be used for his glory, right? Maybe for, for some of you who have more money, that's to, to support and love people. Maybe for, for those with less, it's to exhibit great faith in the midst of maybe not always feeling like you know where the next meal is going to come from. And, and maybe to really drive this point home in a way that kind of stings, but our, our diseases, our illnesses, our cancer, maybe even, is from God, through God, and to his glory. Or to steal the words from uh, pastor and author John Piper, he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer, to which he made the point, everything is meant to go to the glory of God. So how can we use even our most difficult circumstances to honor the one to whom everything belongs? Right? We said earlier that the way that Paul writes, he shows that he believes that theology shapes how we live. He'll write about what is true, and then he'll write about how we should respond to that truth. And if we believe Romans 11.36 is true, it necessarily transforms how we live. So Paul wraps this all up by making a short and, and honestly honest statement, because if, or sorry, a short and obvious statement. Um, because if all that what he has said to this point about God is true, then he clearly deserves all glory forever. No one else compares. No one is worthy of it in any way. And that closes this doxology. So I want us to be grounded here as we move forward. God is all-knowing, all-wise, 
all rich, and worthy of all worship, because everything is his, us included. This will make understanding and obeying the coming commands from Paul far, far easier. So we hit Romans chapter 12, and in verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul is, is appealing or urging or exhorting. Essentially, it's a strong plea. That, that's the point. Like, I, I am urging you. I'm serious about this. These things that I'm about to say, I'm serious about this. And if we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, which at New Life Church, that is what we believe, it means that God is serious about this as well. So it's a strong plea, which Paul leads in by saying, therefore, which you've heard me say this from the stage before, you'll hear me say it again, when we see a word like therefore, we, we need to figure out why it's there. What is he referring back to? What is he wanting us to look at to understand the rest of where he's going? And I think in this case, uh, it's the first 11 chapters of this entire book. So don't have time to go through all of that. Um, but essentially, Paul has explained the gospel in depth through the first 11 chapters. So he talked about the problem of sin. He talked about the sacrifice of Christ. He talked about the necessity of faith in being saved. And now he's saying, in light of the mercy that God has shown you in the gospel, this is how you should respond. That's where he's going at the start of Romans chapter 12. You have been shown immense mercy. Now live like it. Live like this is true. And the way that he says to do that is to present your bodies by which he just means every part of you, all of you, mind, strength, will, your actual physical body, the things that you do with it, as a living sacrifice to God. It's a really interesting phrase, right? Especially for these people who would have been used to Old Testament sacrifices. Took an animal, you killed it. It's dead. That's how sacrifice works. Something dies. But the New Testament comes along, and there's only one sacrifice in the New Testament, and that's Jesus Christ going up on the cross, dying, but then rising again. So Paul is saying, the sacrifice that you now look to, he's alive. So you too now, you die to yourself. You die to your desires. You die maybe to your hopes and dreams for the sake of Christ. Why? Because he has died for you. I think one of the ways in which he may be puts this a little more plainly, is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. These are well-known verses. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what's his point? His point is, Paul has died. Paul was, was laid on the altar before God. He was crucified with Christ. And now, Paul becomes a vessel through whom Christ can accomplish his good purposes. And so what he's doing here, at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, is he is calling each Christian to do the same thing. To die to themselves, to become a vessel through whom Christ can accomplish his good purposes. And these living sacrifices, he said, are, says, are to be holy and acceptable to God. Now, we always have to clarify this not acceptable by our works for the sake of salvation, but as a response to our salvation, living lives that are acceptable to him. 
which he says is our, and now, depending on your translation, we're going to have a couple of wildly different words in that place. So I'm preaching out of the English Standard Version, which says spiritual worship. Uh, I believe the NIV translates it true and proper worship. Um, I might get myself in trouble here. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I read a whole lot this week, and I don't think either of those are great translations of the Greek word that's there. Um, the word, which when I say the Greek word, there's going to be an English word that comes to mind. The Greek word is logikos, which sounds a whole lot like logic. It's where we get that idea from. And so I think how you could probably better translate this is do, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your rational or your reasonable or your logical worship. What Paul is saying is that to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God is the most rational response based on what has been done. To do anything else just wouldn't make any sense. So if you're not a Christian and you're here today, uh, you probably think we aren't very rational, right? You probably think that we, we believe in a myth. We believe in this guy who, who lived 2,000 years ago and, and we're all a little bit crazy and we do weird things and, and that's fine. Um, but it's worth saying and I think you have to consider this, there's one claim on which our entire religion hinges, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody debates that Jesus existed. Bad historians are the only people who try to argue that a guy named Jesus of Nazareth did not live, did not do a lot of what the Bible says he did. The question becomes, did he rise from the dead? We know he was crucified. Is there a body somewhere? And I think there are some pretty compelling reasons to believe that there's not a body somewhere. And if he rose from the dead, then we are doing the only rational thing that we can possibly do. Because if he rose from the dead, then everything else he said is true. I'm, I'm listening to the guy who rose from the dead. I don't really care how crazy what he says sounded. If he died on a cross and then he got out of the grave, I'm just listening to him. That's, that's where it hinges. So, so really, that's the claim that you have to grapple with if you think that we are irrational. But I also say to you, if you're a Christian here, at the very least, if you call yourself one, and you have held back any part of your life from the Lord, what Paul is saying is that you are being irrational, that you are not responding to the gospel in a way that makes sense. Because if God has done what God has done, the most logical response is to present yourself as a living sacrifice to him. So the question comes then, how do we do this? That's how Paul wraps up in verse 2. He writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here you go. If you want, you want a good New Year's resolution or just a good resolution for your Christian life, that's the one. Romans 12, 2. It's three things. There's, there's three things that, that Paul is calling Christians, us, or to say it maybe better, that the Holy Spirit of God through Paul is calling us to do. Those three things are do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and with your renewed mind, learn to discern God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. So let's just take a look at each of those. So the first he says is do not be conformed to this world. This is a legitimate threat to all of us, even to me as a pastor who I, I work and live in this building. <laughs> I spend a lot of time around Christians, but it's 
a really, really natural thing to want to do, right? We, we want to be liked. We naturally want to look like others. We want to be accepted. We, we want people to care about us and about the things that we think. And in a lot of situations, we might even do this in attempt to, to reach people. I would say a misguided attempt, but an attempt, right? We might try to look more like the world in order to try to make Christianity maybe more attractive, um, right? It's almost like we have this idea sometimes that, that if they see that I'm like them, they'll be more willing to hear the message. And the unfortunate reality is that if we look around the North American church, um, there are a lot of churches that have gone this route. They've, they've compromised on God's word under the guise of reaching people. Um, and these churches, history has essentially shown to this point, either collapse or continue to exist, but really leave people with no hope. God's word has to be the standard. And so, um, at the risk, I'm certain, of maybe getting myself in trouble this morning, I want to offer three ways that I see Christians doing this today. The first, I think, is probably the most obvious, the, the one that, depending on who you are, you're either going to love what I'm about to say or you're really going to hate it. Um, the first is that, that we are seeing the Church of Jesus Christ compromising on a biblical view of gender and sexuality. That's what's happening. Uh, the Word of God is clear that this is not an issue that's up to interpretation. It, for, for teenagers here who spend a lot of time on TikTok, there are like these weird 60-second clips that will try to claim that these verses are poorly translated. It sounds really good when a guy references it in 60 seconds. Sit him down with an actual scholar for 15 minutes and you'll realize that his argument is horribly flawed. Just a little side note there. Um, but the Bible is clear that, that God made man and woman, and he made marriage to be a union between one man and one woman in eternal covenant, not eternal, in a, in a lifelong covenant bond. And the reason that's so important is that that's a picture of something, that he designed marriage to remind us of our relationship to Jesus Christ. Paul will say in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And so when God designed marriage to be a picture, that means that we have to protect that picture. Christ as the husband, sacrificially serving and loving his bride, the bride longing for her husband, desiring that loving bond. That, that is what we do as we wait for Christ. And we've seen Christians compromise on this for the sake of conforming to the world, being more liked. Second way I think I've seen Christians do this, especially maybe our neighbors to the south and especially over the last six years or so, um, we've started to look like the world in the sense that we almost act like our political leaders can save us. Let me, let me just say from the stage right now, uh, Justin Trudeau, Pierre Polyev, Jagmeet Singh uh, are three men who all need to bow their knee to Jesus Christ. None of them can save us. None of their policies can save us. No political party owns the Bible. <laughs> no political party is aligned with Jesus Christ. And ultimately, no human government will ever be able to accomplish what Jesus Christ desires for the world. They can't do it. They're fallen. They're sinners. We need to look to Christ as our Savior and not our politics. And finally, a third way, and I think probably the most destructive, the most insidious um, in a lot of ways, and I see this even in myself, we've bought into the American dream mindset. Work hard, make a lot of money, retire early, own the big, ho big houses, own the fancy cars, um, live for ourselves, right? Build up our own little kingdoms. And I'm not saying necessarily that any of those things are bad, but ultimately how we use those resources, I think we can have to look a whole lot like the world. 
how we, how we use these things that we've built up, the ways that we spend our time, we start to look a lot more like our neighbors than we do maybe how Christians should, maybe how Christ has called us to. The reality is that, that we are called to be distinct. Nowhere in all the pages of Scripture does it affirm looking like the world in order to try to reach it. It actually affirms the reality that Christians should stick out. I mean, Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he writes, you, or he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And the Apostle Paul, I think probably picking up on this idea that Jesus said, um, he writes in Philippians 2, Rusty just preached on this a couple weeks ago, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Lights stick out. Right? You walk outside into a dark place, you turn a flashlight on, everybody knows where you are. The, the call of the Christian life is distinction. We are supposed to look different. We're supposed to be a little weird, <laughs> a little strange to people because we just aren't quite the same. So then rather than conforming to the world, Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Right? The Christian life is a journey. And it's a journey not of being conformed to the world, but being conformed to the image of Christ and to his word. And this is, it's worth noting, both something that we strive for, that we work towards, but it is also ultimately a miracle that God works within us. We have the responsibility, but, but God has the power to actually make things happen, to transform us. But then we, we need to ask, how do we pursue this? What are the things that we can do in order to seek the renewing of our minds. Just a few. Um, I think this is good. It's January 1st. There's a lot of you here because I think the first answer is that, that we gather with the church. Right? I mean, most of us spend six days a week in an environment full of people who want to see us conform to the world. Right? The, the world wants to make us conform. And so after six days of that struggle, of that battle, we, we gather together on the 7th. We're strengthened, we're encouraged, we're, we're built up together towards Christ-likeness. We encourage one another, we spur one another on. And I think parents, especially this is good for you to hear. Uh, I graduated six years ago now, um, and it was already a bad time in a public high school for a Christian. Like, I, I came home at the end of most days really drained, really exhausted, because I was the only Christian that I was aware of in my school. Um, from what I've heard, it's gotten even worse. Your kids need to be with other believers if they are going to be strengthened and built up. They need to be discipled by you as well as by the church because their teachers, their, their peers have that influence. They want them to conform. Second way, we pursue knowledge of God. Now, I mean this both in the sense of, of reading our Bibles, absolutely, should be in the habit of doing that, uh, but also we, we live in a really, really good time in human history um, there are literally thousands of Christian books published every year in English that we can read. There's a lot. 500 years ago, that wasn't an option. Most Christians didn't even have their own Bibles, let alone access to the type of resources that we have. Um, find those good resources. Deepen your knowledge of God, of his character, of his nature. Deepen your knowledge of, of how he desires us to relate to him. And if you need good recommendations on books, you have 
a few pastors who all like to read. We all have libraries that I'm sure we're more than happy to share from if that's something that you want to grow in. Third thing, um, so pursue knowledge of God and pursue relationship with God. What I mean by that is God speaks to us through his word and we respond back in prayer, right? We hear him speak in the pages of scripture and we respond by praying for the things that we see in scripture that we should be. Um, with a verse like this, praying that our minds would be transformed. And all these things are hard work, right? I mean, we use the term spiritual disciplines for these things because like diet or exercise, they take dedication, right? For any of you who have put in the work to keep up some kind of diet or exercise routine, um, you know that it's not always easy, right? You wake up some mornings and you really just, you don't want to. You, you can't imagine a worse thing than going to the gym for an hour and having to go through your exercise routine, but you do it because you know it's good. And that's the Christian life. We, we discipline ourselves. We create these habits that help renew our minds and conform us to the image of Christ. And so then, finally, with our renewed minds, we are to learn to discern God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. I love grounding this in what Paul has said at the end of chapter 11, because like you could ask the question, well, why would I want to know God's will? Why does that really matter to me? And, and the answer, if we look back just a few verses, is because it's based on perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom and perfect resources to accomplish it. In other words, uh, his plan is better than yours. Pretty simple, right? His plan is better than ours. And so Paul is saying that God has a plan for you. And as you grow to know him more, you learn better how to seek and pursue it. But can I tell you something crazy? Um, I know God's will for your life. Now, not every specific, not, not every detail, but I actually am pretty confident that I know the overarching will of God for you, not because I'm a pastor, but because the Bible directly tells us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes probably as bluntly as you can imagine, uh, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, or your holiness, your becoming more like Jesus. This led Puritan theologian John Owen to write the words, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. This is hard to preach. Like, I'm going to be really honest, I feel so much tension going into a section of a sermon like this, um, but it's good. It's good. We, we need to be reminded that, that the Christian life, um, well, that, that this statement is true, that, that we are called really to make war on our sin. And so if you're going to take nothing else from the message this morning, I want it to be this, right? You need to be serious, Christian, about fighting your sin. So, hey, let's, let's, let's do the fun. Let's do the fun stuff. Men, um, if the statistics I looked at this week are accurate, 70% of you likely are using pornography on a weekly basis. Make that public. Go to other men. Make war on your sin. Another thing, men, I think this is something we all struggle with, is an apathy in the spiritual leadership of our home. Right? Failing to actually be the self-sacrificial servant leaders that God has called us to be to open God's word with our wives, with our kids, to pray with them, to, to lead in a way that is not domineering, but gentle and loving like Christ was. Women, 
gossip, jealous, jealousy, envy, comparison. These things that can really quickly become almost acceptable in a church culture, right? Like, oh, I'm just sharing a prayer request, and it just happens to also kind of be gossip, right? We have to make war against these things that, that we've gotten so used to that we don't even question them anymore, but the Bible calls us to be transformed, to be conformed to Christ. Teenagers, I'm about to sound like a crotchety old man, so uh, I'm 24. I'm not that much older than you. Um, the Bible is clear that children are to honor their parents. Yes, I know you think they're wrong. Yes, I know they, they might seem old and out of touch, um, and, and in some ways they, they might be missing the point. That might be true, but you're called to honor them, to love them, to respect them as your parents. And I'm sure there's at least some of you here who, like me, were just hardcore living a double life in high school, right? You, you look like a Christian at home and in church, and you think nobody sees, and they probably don't. You're probably pretty good at hiding it if you were like me. Um, and then at school, you're a totally different person. It's probably true of some of you. Um, and if you are truly a Christian, God calls you to repent from that. That is not the way that he desires for you to live. And so as hard as it is to, to preach through something like this and, and to feel the, the tension of, of bringing these things up, right, of saying the word pornography from a church stage, um, killing sin is a necessary component of the Christian life. It is God's will for us, right? If ever you ask that question, I want to know what God's will for me, the number one answer that the Bible gives us is make war on your sin. Fight it. Kill it. Find people. Be accountable. Go to war against anything in you that does not honor Jesus Christ. Right? So we are saved by grace, but we strive with all we have to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. But why? I want to wrap up with this. Why? Because it is. It, it's hard work. It's not fun. None of us want to stop doing these things that feel really good in the moment. And I think the answer that Scripture gives us is that Christ is worth it. I mean, really, let, let me read to you these verses from Romans 11 again. Listen to Paul's description. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's our God. He's worth it. From him and through him and to him are all things. <clears throat> but we enter 2023 in a world that increasingly tells us to live for ourselves. Right? All of the mantras of our culture, do what makes you happy. You do you. Do, do what you feel is best. Right? Trust your heart. All these different things that are essentially saying, build your own kingdom. You do the things that feel good. What happens to other people? Not your concern. You be happy. And if that negatively affects other people, sucks to be them. They're, they're trying to do the same thing as you. We, we live in a culture that is essentially in every way begging us to live for ourselves and to just say, screw everyone else. I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. But from Christ and through Christ and to Christ, not us, are all things. To him be the glory, not our own kingdoms, not our own fulfillment, not our own happiness. To him be the glory. May he be glorified in us by our rejection of the world, 
by our renewed minds, our, our minds that are being renewed as we pursue him, and by our pursuit of his will forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, none of us are sufficient for these things. We, we, we are not all-knowing. We are not all-wise. We, we do not possess everything. Um, we lack so much. But you are the giver of all good gifts. And, and through Jesus Christ, you have made a way for us to be made into his image. That, that through faith in him, your spirit would work in each one of us, sanctifying us, making us holy, making us acceptable, pleasing, living sacrifices to you. So, Father, I just pray for this church. I pray that we would be a people who pursue you at all costs, who pursue Christ at all costs, that his glory would be our focus, our, our, our goal, our aim in all that we do. Lord, strengthen us to do these things that we are not capable of, but build in us the desire to fight, to make war on our sin, to, to make war on these cultural mantras that, that feel so good but ultimately lead to death. Because, Father, all things are from you. They're through you. They are to you. And we want to be a people who ultimately live for your glory forever and ever. Amen.